0: Our capacity to love. So early brain research, they seem to think that we had a ten percent capacity to use our brain. Later, that was shown to be not true, that we only use ten percent. But I think probably more true is that we only use ten percent of our heart. And so the question is, what would it be like if we used a hundred percent of our heart? And not just your heart, it's the heart. If you used 100% of the heart, yours is thinking too small. And really, I think in the journey of meditation, discovering the heart is a really wonderful journey that happens over time. And many of you know about the developing 100% capacity of heart. When we're small children, we develop heart. As we become teenagers, we learn about partnered relationships. As we get older, we might have kids of our own and learn about the capacity of heart. We come to the Dharma. We learn about the capacity of heart through that, through creativity, through art, through music. We learn about developing this capacity of heart through all different means. It's really, I think, of like layering a tree. Yeah, we just—I feel like I develop more rings as I get older and as I mature in the Dharma. The the heart just gets more and more rings to it. It's a really beautiful process—the heart tree rings. And John talked about last night about the light of the sun, and accessing that unconditional capacity of the heart. And I've often thought of that—we our 10% capacity of the heart is like a flashlight. We often have a heart that's like a flashlight. We shine on the people we know. We shine on the things, people, places, and things we feel familiar with. What would it be if you put away that flashlight and were able to do that 100% capacity? One way we can move from the flashlight heart to the sun heart, there's actually two ways, inclusivity and connection. Inclusivity, the first way. It's inclusivity of self, all parts of yourself, like we talked about today in the metta, no part left out, welcoming all parts of yourself. That's how we expand the capacity of heart to ourselves, and often we're the hardest. We allow all those parts to be, including the John's my life isn't in shambles part, the I'm a bad person, I need to fix that, this, I'm not okay until all our managers. We let them all sit in that lap of the Buddha. That's inclusivity of heart, letting all those parts be. There's like this din of thoughts and feelings just yelling at us all the time. And can we just make space for them all just to sit around us in this one capacity of heart? I have a teacher in my therapy practice who says, we're doing on the inside what Jesus did on the outside. And I really love that. You know, Jesus was out there inviting everyone in the prostitutes, the, you know, thieves, everybody made space for everybody. Everybody was welcome. And we're doing that on the inside. We're being Jesus on the inside with all our parts. That's 100% capacity of heart, 100% inclusivity with ourselves. It's not about favoring one emotion over the other. Sometimes as Buddhists, we can think they're better emotions than others, but if these were all your children and you were welcoming them all home, that's what we're doing on the cushion. We're welcoming all these kids home. We're turning the flashlight inside into the light of the sun inside. And really, when you start to bring that inclusivity, there's nothing that can't be met. There's no thought, there's no feeling that can't be met by this presence of true nature, of sun. Nothing. Nothing that can't be held, nothing that can't be connected with. And when you start to know that inside, you start to know that outside, too. And you don't villainize anyone. As John said, you don't become the victim of anything. There's nothing that can't be loved outside, either. And on these retreats and these long, silent days, you really, you hear a lot of noise inside. So it's really developing this unshakable patience of inclusivity of all parts of yourself. Maya Angelou, she used to say when she would help with people healing in her community, she would go to each person and she would say, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Imagine if you could ask that inside to yourself, to all your parts. When you sit on the cushion, where does it hurt? Oh, honey, where does it hurt? And that was allowed to be met with compassion and release. Everything really is self-liberating when you just bring kindness and heart and inclusivity to it. I had a teacher who once said that complete self-acceptance was enlightenment. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, I'll just do the complete self-acceptance route. That'll be easier. (laughs) I was on a three-month retreat. I'm like, that could be easier than sitting a three-month retreat. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Naive, (laughs) early days. (laughs) So complete self-acceptance. I struggled with very severe depression most of my life, and I spent 20-some years in therapy and At that time, about 20 years, on the cushion. And one day on a self-retreat, it really dawned on me, you know, this probably isn't going to go away. (laughs) And it was just like, oh, okay. And when I completely accepted it, it, it wasn't a problem anymore. When you can turn to each thing as your child and say, it's fine just as you are. If you're with me in this way, the rest of my life, fine. Sadness, jealousy, anger, sorrow. Fine. That's inclusivity. That's 100% heart. It's seeing where we clench inside. If you want to just be really basic, just find where you're clenched inside. And bringing that Jesus on the inside to all the places where it hurts, where it's clenched. And we have these sneaky things called spiritual clenches. My teacher, Adyashanti, says self-contraction and the spiritual search are the same thing. Self-contraction and the spiritual search are the same thing. So any spiritual search even is some kind of clench. What if there isn't anything to figure out and there's nothing missing? We often go on the spiritual search because we think there's something missing. What if we just took away that idea, that clench, that story, that there was something missing? How would that feel? How would your heart feel then? Just notice that. huge amount of clench or closure of the heart is that I'll be ready when, in order, whenever this gets taken care of. It's that sense of inadequacy, what if you were okay now? That's 100% heart. When we grow up in families with trauma or really or difficulty, we often create a culture inside of overwhelm, of waiting, of that safety that never quite comes of that resting place where we can open our heart that never quite comes. We never get that place. You probably noticed that as a kid, you probably notice it as an adult. So it's really important in this spiritual journey to take a moment and see that you've arrived, to see that that time is now. You can unclench, you can have some more of that open-heartedness now. It is safe. It is safe in this five-day retreat. It's safe right in this moment. Nothing's missing. There isn't something more you need to figure out or get to be safe. That's the lie our families told us. That's the lie of trauma. But as an adult, just start to relax into that possibility of opening the heart more. Sort of a koan. What if everything is the thing you've been seeking? Then you don't have to be missing anything ever. Everything is what we've been looking for. This is it. This. This. This is it. Right here. And then the heart can just relax if you wanted to. Sometimes I use the inquiry question of, what if this was Buddha nature? What if this was Buddha nature? and This, that person smoking over there was Buddha nature, right? The second piece of chocolate cake was Buddha nature. (laughs) Falling asleep on the cushion was Buddha nature. What if this was Buddha nature? Person revving their car on the highway, this was Buddha nature. You never know where your teacher will be today. You never know. That's inclusivity. As I said earlier in the meta, does Mother Nature leave anything out? Even our own insanity, human insanity, Mother Nature does not leave that out. She allows us to be, or so it seems. So we could learn from Mother Nature about this 100% inclusivity, couldn't we? The oak tree doesn't judge itself for not being bigger than the other oak tree. A flower doesn't say, what about that one? That one opened and you didn't. Nothing in nature judges itself. Dogs don't say, well, why aren't I more like a cat? So inclusivity, open-heartedness is our ability to sit with our pain and sit with our differences and not leave anything out. I like the phrase in um, the Jewish (laughs) culture of sit-shiva, When someone dies, you you sit with the pain for a year. You listen, you laugh, you cry. You just sit with the uncomfortableness. And a wise heart learns to not be anxious with suffering. That's what we're developing here as meditators, the ability to have the strength of heart not to be anxious with suffering, not to collapse when things don't go right, That's inclusivity. That's 100% heart. It's that ability to be with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows with unshakable heart. Dogen says, to know yourself is to forget yourself. And to forget yourself is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. So we come here to, to know ourselves so we can forget ourselves, so we can be part of all of this again. My goddaughter has two twins under the age of one and they, they just are part of all this. They don't really know themselves and they haven't forgotten themselves yet. They're just in the flow of things. So increasing our capacity of the one heart is increasing inclusivity. And the second thing as John touched on the other day's increasing connection. We really think that we understand connection. It's so deep. It is just so deep. I, I could cry talking about it. And I don't understand it. I wouldn't. I don't think I ever will. It's like a wormhole that goes into the unknown, other dimensions, the infinite. And why we come on retreat is it makes our heart more available. It makes all of us more available. And when we're more available because we don't have that din of thoughts confusing us, we can be more connected. More availability is more connection. So sometimes you look at what impedes connection, what decreases our availability. The psychological self, it's not a problem, but it does create a distraction from what's true connection. The psychological self is a process, not a thing. And what we're doing in this practice is eventually there's a moment where the psychological self will fall away. And you'll see that there's nothing there that it was like characters on a movie screen. And then it comes right back in. It's great like that. <laughs> comes right back in. But you know, you know the psychological self is a process, not a thing. And that allows a whole nother level of connection with life because you're not meeting things just through that illusion. Of me. So that psychological self as a process falls away, then it starts back up. But you always will know that there's these gaps in things. There's a wormhole beyond the me and mine. A man from Maui, who's a poet there, he W.S. Mervyn, he said, I'm retiring from the department of me. So What impedes connection is also separation, or I should say the illusion of separation. And separation is a presumption. Separation is a false presumption. And you may or may not believe me, but it's a presumption. And like all presumptions, eventually we start to see what's true about it. And one kind of fallout of the dharma, for better, for worse, is, John can probably attest to this, you get less and less of an inner world. There's just not as much going on in your thoughts and feelings, and or there is, but it's, it's just not as important anymore. And there's less division between inner and outer. And it, it might be aging, too, because I think, you know, over time you get to see, you know, all those judgments and opinions that seem so important, you know, 95% of them were wrong. Have you noticed that? If you had a computer that was wrong 95 or 99% of the time, what would you do with it? It'd be in the trash. <laughs> but we just put up with this wrongness of our mind. It's really amazing when you set a three-month retreat because you can have three months of wrong ideas. It's amazing. There was one guy on one of my first months retreats. He kind of looked like a homeless guy, and I was real sure I had this whole idea about he lived in this trailer, and he came on a scholarship. He was a neurosurgeon. (laughs) And I was like, I just created this whole story about him. Or in a three-month retreat, you might get a kick out of this. You can start thinking like, Week number one, the kind of cookies you want to have when you get off a (laughs) retreat. And like for three months, you'll think about it a lot. And then you get off a retreat and you buy those cookies and they taste like crap. (laughs) Or they taste good for like two seconds and you're like, I spent all this thought on this. Or you think there's somebody you like and then you talk to them and you're like, oh my God, at the end of a retreat. And you create this whole wrong thought about them. So if you can keep a sense of humor, it really is very funny about how wrong we are. And it gets so boring. So that's why the inner world gets less because you just start to have a judgment or a thought now. And I just go this, this like bell goes off. It goes, wrong. <laughs> and you can't really go a lot further when you're hearing the buzzer going off saying Wrong. The other thing about separation in the inner world is you really start to realize you can't think enough thoughts to keep your money safe, to keep your health safe, to keep your kids safe. You really can't think enough to keep any of those things in place or whatever it is that you're afraid of. You can't think enough thoughts to make it happen. And so the buzzer starts going off on that. Meh. Can't do that. Up, oh, new administration, that's not going to happen. You, know, you just get to see. Thoughts don't really work. And that doesn't mean you don't use them as a tool, but you start to believe in that sense of separation that thoughts create less and less. Thoughts get more and more, and judgments get more and more boring, too. Oh, this again. So back to connection and opening the heart and that 100% of the one heart. Connection is really a secret weapon if you use it. So as your thoughts can't keep you safe, what can keep you safe is the ability to say inside or outside, yes, there's pain, yes, there's uncertainty, yes, there's unpredictability, and I'll be here with you through it, whatever it takes. That's our secret weapon. And often as kids, nobody said that to us. Nobody said, hey, kid, you're in pain. I can't fix it. I can't figure it out, but I'll hold your hand, and I'll be here with you through it, and we'll do this together. One of my friends is about to have a baby, and she's been quite worried about the state of the world, and we talked about this, you know, that that anxiety, and I said, you know, the best gift you can give Your daughter is disability just to say, gosh, I don't know, but I'll be here. I'll be here with you through that. And being able to say that inside to all our parts when we're struggling and in difficulty, I'll be here with you through it. That's healing. That's opening the heart inside and outside. I can't fix it. But I'll walk this path with you. Ramdas says we're all just walking each other home. And many of us had no one to hold our hand and walk us through the valley of death, the shadows. But you can do that now, and we can all do that together as a Sangha. That's connection, that's that one heart. Don't underestimate the value of connection. One of my friends was in a moped accident on Maui, and it was a very severe accident. And just the night before, she had been listening to Peter Levine, who's a somatic therapist, talk about how when he had been in an accident, he had just found one person, a stranger, to make eye contact with him and hold his hand, and that stopped him from having any post-traumatic stress syndrome. Zero. Because of that connection, that secret weapon of connection, that emergency repair kit of connection. So she had happened to hear that and then that next day she was in this horrific accident and there was no one. But as she's in the ambulance and this young 20-year-old EMT guy is just like trying to figure out what to do and afraid and horrified, she goes, Please just look me in the eye and hold my hand. So he stopped what he was doing. He held her hand. He looked her in the eye, and tears started streaming down his face because no one had ever asked him to do that before. And he felt it, and she felt it, and she had no post-traumatic stress from that accident. Powerful connection. Powerful. Another way to build connection is to understand that life is like a wave. Your heart is a wave. Particles are all waves. Emotion is E plus motion, energy in motion. Life functions like a wave. So you have this tension, this energy, then a gap, then tension, then a gap, and in Hawaii, you know a lot about waves because you swim a lot and waves are a part of your life and life and death happens in the ocean with waves. And you learn with waves, like when there's a big swell, you, you have to find where the gaps are. You have to learn to rest. If you're swimming into shore and big waves come up, you have to learn even when you get pulled back to wait for the gap. So either when you get barraged by thoughts and feelings, notice there's gaps in between every thought and there's gaps in between every feeling and you can rest there and you can use those. Those are places of connectivity. So even if you're getting pummeled by stuff, by waves, by the waves of your humanity or the humanity, just just find those spaces in there, almost like the spaces in between waves where you can rest as you're trying to swim through this life. Find those spaces between thoughts and emotions and negative thinking that you can rest. It's like, my life is in shambles, then there's a gap. My life is really in shambles, then there's a gap. <laughs> I'm a terrible person, there's a gap. No, but I'm really the worst person on the planet. There's a gap. There's gaps in there. Let yourself rest in whatever those spaces are and learn about those spaces. Sometimes when I really get hit with a lot of negative thoughts, and it still happens, I just try to, like, step back and just feel the gaps, especially when the thoughts seem really believable. And another thing to do that really helps our connectivity, there's this second kind of wave in Hawaii that's called cross wave. So you have the waves that are coming in, and then you get these waves that come on the side. And if you get caught in the middle, it's just utter chaos. It's like called like a washing machine where you almost can't get out. It's like this weird vortex, and as a swimmer, Everybody generally gets caught in these once and you never do it again because it's very dangerous and you don't, of course, try to get caught in there, but when you find yourself in one of these cross-wave washing machines, and this happens in the mind and heart, you just have to get completely still and find this, almost like this pillar of equanimity and breathe and in a way you have to pray. And you just have to find something that moves you out of this cross pattern because there is no movement and you're stuck. And it might be thoughts versus waves that are hitting you or the chaos of the world, right, coming at you from several sides. You almost have to go down and in and then you go through. And I'm telling you this because there's a lot of chaotic times I know that some of us feel and we we really will have to find this almost this pillar of equanimity and connection inside in order to deal with these cross waves so we can stay connected. That's how we stay in the one heart, even when everyone else is losing heart, when others are losing heart, how we can stay in it. And the last way to increase connection, that 100%, of heart capacity, is just allowing the distance between subject, me, and object, you, or anything out there, to start to collapse. The distance between subject and object just starts to collapse through practice. And if that doesn't make sense to you, don't worry about it. It's just sort of naturally happening because you're showing up and you're being more available. So, what happens is the inside becomes outside and the outside starts to become inside. And there's this infinity symbol that the Hawaiian Lomi Lomi practice. It's called flying. And the outside becomes the inside and the inside becomes the outside. And it's all this one connected thing that wave motion. The heart of our one heart. It gets so the leaf you see is inside of you. And when you're looking at the sunset, you're inside of it. And the heat in your hand is a family member. This light is a family member. And my Hawaiian teacher. She says, we are all made of magic. If you pay attention to the magic, the mind surrenders its dictatorship of the system. Pay attention to the magic, this sacred movement, and allow it just to keep layering and layering and layering. Now that's how the 100% of heart develops, like a tree And it can be fun, you you probably won't do it here on retreat, but at another time when you leave retreat, don't just look at connection from the exterior. So even if you have somebody who's really grumpy and disconnected, you can meet their interior, you can meet anyone's interior, no matter what kind of day they're having, you can let your interior meet their interior. That's connection. You don't have to wait till they connect with you. Even if no one in the world was connecting with you, you could feel connected if you use this kind of x-ray ability to meet their interior. They know now that dolphins and whales, they actually, when they meet you, they do a kind of ultrasound of your body. (laughs) They're like, hi, (laughs) let me meet your interior. (laughs) And there you have it. They know all about you, more than you do. That's why they're supposedly often drawn to cancer, people that have illnesses, and unalignment inside their body. They can feel it. I read recently this little piece by Dan Siegel, who's a brain researcher. He went to a a country called Namibia, which was the home of tribes that seemed genetically most related to first Homo sapiens. So he says, One night, sitting around the campfire, I asked the translator to ask one of the villagers a question. Here in Namibia, I said, there's horrible drought, famine, and many endemic diseases that are resistant to medications, and yet the people of every village we visited seem very happy. Can you ask why they're so happy? My translator posed the question to the villager, who said something I'll never forget. He said, We're happy because we belong. We belong to each other in our community, and we belong to the earth. Then the villager asked the translator a question for me. Where do you live? Do you belong? I was struck silent, and I thought, You know, I can spend a whole day even in our small town and not meet anyone I know. There's so little that connects me and others to our earth unless I make an intentional effort to make it happen. I thought about how the studies show that people, at least in the US, are some of the most unhappy on the planet, even though we're richer, have more food, and own more stuff than citizens of any other country. It made me realize that we have a fundamental problem of not belonging. So on these retreats, we're creating a belonging. That's connection. We're adding in a little bit more belonging inside ourselves, creating that Jesus on the inside, an inclusivity of others that adds to belonging, a collapsing of that sense of separation, subject-object. It's knowing that one heart And that belonging to the Dharma, like I spoke about in the loving-kindness meditation, that sense that we have an ancestry, we have a lineage tree, and we can sit under this 2,600-year-old lineage of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, of belonging to a connecting with our heart and our mind and a way of understanding. It's really beautiful to live in Hawaii because the Polynesian culture really feels that everything's alive. And when they look up at the stars, like I said, the first night, they not only see the stars as ancestors, but they see the space between the stars as ancestors. And when they look at the sky, everything is family. Everything is one thing. The space between the stars is alive with connection and belonging. The whole night sky is family. And they are the night sky as well. The inner and the outer become one. When you talk to a Hawaiian what they are, they say, I am the aina, I am the earth, I am Hawaii. They don't say they're Hawaiian, they say, I am Hawaii. Hawaii. I am this. We've really lost that sense of belonging. It's true for them and it's true for us. We are this earth too. Go out and feel the earth. It doesn't matter whether you're from Ohio or Indiana or Seattle. You are the earth still. You are the night sky. You are the stars. You are the space in between. We've just forgotten that. We're all one thing. We're all connected. We're all family. Hawaiian teacher Abraham Kawaii says, A basic principle throughout the Pacific is family. But most modern people, when you talk about family, they are only looking at people. The Kakuna or elders' perception of family goes deeper than that. It goes into the space of existence, everything you can think of, everything you can see, everything you can hear, smell, breathe, everything you can eat, and soon speak about. Everything you can touch and feel, every heartbeat, every longing, every desire, everything you can walk to, come from, or stand upon. Every moment of your life, high, above, far, below, in between, and all around, this is family. This is family. What if you were to live that? That's belonging. That's 100% heart and connection. So don't underestimate the tiny little connection you might feel you're making in this retreat. It might just be 1% in here, in your heart. But this 1% here, if you had a laser pointer and you were moving at 1% in your heart, you might move miles in outer space. So don't underestimate what you're doing here, this bit of opening your heart, another 1%, 10%, can have a very large effect on all beings, more than we know. It's layering, expanding the heart. We probably will never reach 100% capacity because that's just a concept, isn't it? But it is about Learning and knowing and feeling and finding all of you. When I first asked my teacher and why she's really into body movement, and I kept saying, Why do I have to do this? And she was like, So you can feel all of you, all of you. And she said one time after a retreat, she was able to feel the water between her toes when she was swimming. And she had never felt that before. She had just thought her feet were moving in the water, and she noticed, oh, there's water between my toes. It's feeling all of you, including more and more connection. And I'd like to close with this quotation from Nissa Gardada. It was kind of a wild, cigarette-smoking, loud... Non dual teacher? The moment you know your real being, you are afraid of nothing. Then the universe is your own. It becomes your body, an expression, and a tool. The happiness of being absolutely free is beyond description. Once you can say with confidence born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself then you are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. Then the senseless sorrow of mankind becomes your sole concern. The moment you know your real being, you are afraid of nothing. Then the senseless sorrow of mankind becomes your sole concern. So let's sit for one minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.